0: Hey everybody, welcome back. Hey Flip, good to see you. This is the Zoom edition of the Curtain Call podcast. Uh, pulling the curtain back, obviously we're quarantined, so we're doing this over Zoom. Please um, forgive our audio while we try to figure out the best way to deliver this to you. How are you doing, Flip?
1: I'm doing okay, and uh, I'm grateful we're not quarantined together as much as I like you. Uh, happy that That's not the case, but, so I looked for some good news where we could find it here, but how are you doing? You all right? Your family good?
0: Yeah, we're doing well. Thanks for asking. You're coming out quick and strong, huh? Glad you're not I,
1: I am. I, I was going to start with social distancing because I practiced <laughs> that for 50 years of my life. So there you go. But anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, social distancing seems to work. And we seem like we're like we don't have this thing figured out yet. But uh, you know, we're making strides and uh, there's reasons to be
0: optimistic. reasons to be optimistic. Um, Obviously, I have my fingers crossed for baseball. More importantly though, we, we need to be safe as a nation. We need to be healthy as a population. Um, not a lot of news as it relates to baseball because all the talk is about this COVID-19. Um, but you do hear rumors every now and then, Flip. Uh, one of them being the Arizona rumor. Talk to us a little bit about that.
2: Well,
1: you know, look, I think Major League Baseball is considering any number of scenarios. And one of them was the, was the Arizona concept. Uh, that teams would play they would play in this in Arizona and they would play two or three games a day and they play seven innings a game and uh, uh, there would be no fans in attendance and they would make it as safe as possible but you know for the players but the reality is that uh, look until this thing is eradicated I, I really don't know you're still taking a chance even under the best set of circumstances and I, I do think that it would uh, it gets complicated because of you know, I know the family, they'd be isolated from the families, the players, and then, you know, and any, but anything can happen because you will still, still have to come in contact with third-party people no matter what. You will have to just because, you know, we're in a hotel, we're staying in hotels, well, you know, you'll come in contact with people in hotels no matter how hard you try to avoid it or people might be preparing food or who knows what the situation would be, but you're, you're not totally in an environment where you could say 100% that you don't have to worry about this thing unless obviously it's eradicated, then you're talking about a whole different set of circumstances. But as long as that virus is still, you know, out there and still, you know, wreaking havoc and, and, and destruction that it's wreaking, uh, that it's causing right now, I think one has to be, take every precaution. I know MLB knows that and they will take every precaution, but still in all, it's still a risk and and I, unless this thing's eradicated, it's a risk. So we can't have that and the players I know, won't, most of the players I'm sure don't want to be put in harm's way and, no one wants to be put in way. So there are some plans they're thinking about. I think the more realistic one might be something that goes along the lines of the what's called the July plan. Maybe, maybe possibly they could start sometime in July. Remember, even if they get this thing under control and there's a vaccine or whatever they need to do to eradicate it happens, that you still have to give the players some time to go back on the field. I mean, they haven't had a spring training now. They're going to have to start all over again. Pitchers have to you know stretch out their arms the players have to get some kind of game sheet. That's going to take at least three weeks, maybe a month. So the idea that, you know, if this can if this get under control by mid-June, then you got a chance to, you know, play by maybe mid-July, and you can play the rest of July, by August, September, play the whole month of October regular season games, and then November would be your postseason. You go to neutral sites to do that, warm-weather facilities, domes, whatever. I think baseball, as I know, is considering that's one of the plans. Try to get 130 games in if they can, and another plan for maybe around 100. But right after that, it becomes hard to the integrity of a season you, know, you can't play the first team that wins ten games gets the ten games wins. This <laughs> work like that you can't do that. Uh, so you're gonna have to do you know one of those other plans. And like I said, there are a couple that are being floated around, and they will obviously morph and change as the situation changes. We're in a, a fluid time, and we that we have to be fluid, and and uh, and obviously baseball has to be fluid when it comes to its plans going so forward.
0: One of the uh, rumors I saw described uh, realignment of sorts. Obviously, because people are going to be playing in, in um, excuse me, Arizona and Florida. Um, but it's just odd to see teams like the Mets, you know, I'm just having fun as a fan here, the Mets and the Yankees in the same league, or uh, the Yankees and Pirates in the same division, even. Uh, it was interesting. Yeah. But you now, have to be creative uh, at this point.
1: Uh, yeah, exactly. They have to be extremely creative. And again, this, knowing that this is season will be, no matter what happens, if there is a season that it's an aberration hopefully, and that uh you know they'll just have to like we had this situation a long time ago the the split season because of the strike uh that stopped the game, and they were able to you know they had to play two different seasons if you will they had to they a winner for the first half and a winner for the second half, so you know they got into that and then they then they had to figure out the playoffs accordingly based on the, that that alignment of of teams that who won so um, it was not easy for the baseball, but everybody understands it's sort of an aberration. It's, uh, it's going to happen from every from time to time, and this is mean, one of those times. Look, these strange times, straight call for strange measures, you know. They just do. So, baseball. The, the, anybody who's a purist can't look at it and say, "Well, you know, they played with a DH, they didn't play without the DH. They did this, they that that rule, they did this rule. I think that really has to go out the window right now." And, if, and I think if you're a fan of the game, you have to number one, obviously that. Things get right in the world, so we can have a season. And if they if things do get right in the world, then you have to take whatever season you can get and hope for the best.
0: You're right. This is a strange time flip. Um, I find myself struggling for how to entertain myself at times. You know, I'm used to going outside and used to taking a bike ride. Um, my hope is that <laughs> <laughs> my hope is that we can help entertain some of the listeners. And I think absolutely. this episode, absolutely, I'm in right
1: now. I'm being entertained at the moment. Well, I
0: just wish that people could see what we were talking, what we were doing. We're on Zoom. <laughs> They're only going to listen. The faces well, I'm getting right now. Well, hopefully the technology someday will be present where they can listen to a podcast and see. But then it wouldn't be a podcast anymore, would it? No, no. So what I'm trying to say is we have an entertaining episode. We Why don't do- you talk about our guest?
1: Ah, he's terrific. Uh, Steve Sharippa. Who was uh, one of the stars, played Bobby Bacala in The Sopranos uh, for a number of years, and uh, he's had the the fort- good fortune of being in two of the most iconic television shows ever. One is obviously The Sopranos. The other was Blue Bloods. He's been in Blue Bloods for the last five years, and uh, you know is a regular on the series now, and he's really enjoying it. He's doing terrific work, and uh, you know the, the idea that you could be, could be I think the whole business you really you yearn for if you're in the business to get on one series that's a hit, something that's a hit. Uh, you know, becomes like your legacy in the business. But he's had the good, it's actually been in three because in a series with, uh, with Molly Ringwald that was very successful as well. So he's been in three very successful series and two of them are very iconic shows. So he's, and he's a good guy and, uh, you know, and he's uh, got a lot of great stories to tell. So I'm really looking forward to, you know, catching up with him.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too, Flip. Why don't we just get right to it?
1: Very special guest at this time is Steve Sharipa, really good guy, tremendous guy actually, uh, well known actor, writer, producer, podcaster, uh, has had the good fortune to be in two of the most iconic television series of all time, that would be The Sopranos and Blue Bloods. And uh, so how you doing, Steve? Hope all is well, hope you're staying safe in these uh, difficult and crazy times.
2: Hello, buddy, how are, you? how are you guys? How's everything all right? Yeah, we're doing all right. No, tough times hard. out there, tough.
1: Yeah, it is tough. Uh, it's tough, and uh, you know, we're all failing it, but you know, we'll, we'll get through it. We'll get through it as, a, as individuals. We'll get through it as a country. We'll get through it as a world. We will. Um, so. so production must have been – so you're on Blue Bloods now. You've been – what, the last five, six years? And, uh, so production had to be shut down, right, like the rest of the world right now? Yeah, shut we down. shut down
2: uh, March 13th. We were in the middle of our 20th episode. Uh, we were supposed to do twenty two. And we we're in the middle of our 20th They got gotcha. shut down this season. I think there's only two new ones that haven't been shown yet, as opposed to five. Uh, we just didn't get to the last two, and we shut down right in the middle. So uh, that's unfortunate. They were good scripts, but maybe they'll tack them on next year. I don't know. So the,
1: the Bluebirds would come back to finish the, the couple of episodes. It's still uh, OCBS, and obviously it owes the audience. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Two two more episodes instead of new ones. Listen, it's a great show. I'm happy to be a part of it. A good bunch of people. The show's great. I mean, it, it's uh, in the 10th season. They're still doing, you know, seven, eight million people on a Friday, plus people that DVR it. There's another three or four. So it's so a lot of people. Are, you know, Friday night at 10 o'clock's is a tough, tough slot there, but uh, it keeps on chugging along. People like the show, you know.
1: It's a terrific show and uh, with, a, with a great cast and been on, it's been on 10 years now. It's a long time for a television show to be on, Steve. 10 years is a long time. And they had the, recently had the winner finale in December and uh, you, uh, you got shot in the winner finale yeah. and I know a lot of people got very upset about that.
2: So, I, I mean. Yeah, they've written me good stuff, you know. Like I said, I mean, the show is, uh, you know, the, the streets of New York are kind of like part, another cast member. So I like that. You know, I like shooting outside. Uh You know, uh, the cast has been there from the beginning, most of them. And, of course, Seleks, the anchor, and Donnie Wahlberg, and Bridget, and uh – hey the writers are great man they've been there most of the writers have been there from day one you know so it's it's a primetime show and a lot of primetime shows get take uh, take you know it's not hip to like a primetime show now right you gotta you watch some show on cable that gets uh, 300,000 viewers but that's the big deal you know what I mean but this is a quality really well written uh, well-acted show uh, and uh, that's listen the people love it man. You know what I think? I think they like the family part. You know, you don't see a lot of that. You know, they they say a prayer at the the family dinner. Uh, They all eat together on Sundays, which doesn't really exist that much anymore. And so you got the, the, the cop stuff, and then you got that family stuff, and I think it strikes a chord, you know.
1: You know, I really wish that I could say I had Sunday dinner. I had it growing up. But my mom, who was a really wonderful person, but a good cook, she wasn't really. That was not her specialty. So we didn't really have those dinners. And if we did, we made quick work of them. But uh, the show does accentuate the, the value of the family dinner. I, and, and Les Moonbears used to talk about that when Blue Bloods was uh, first year or two of the year. He said he, that was his favorite scene in the entire series on the show to date, was the, uh, with the, with the Sunday dinners with the family. Yeah, how yeah I think a lot is. of
2: people. I mean, that's uh, listen, we like you said that, that used to be when I was growing up. I mean, that was, every Sunday was like Thanksgiving, man. You know, you got your aunts, <laughs> you got your grandparents, your parents. Sometimes you know from both sides of the family. You know, that it was a big deal. You know, you, you go to your grandmother's house. You know, two three o'clock on a Sunday. Uh, people now, everybody's busy. You know, kids are playing soccer. Dads are working. Dads are mom and dads are divorced. You know, there's a whole different, it's a different world, man. You know, man. You know, this quarantine so stuff. Uh, a lot more people are having dinner with their families than have in a long time.
1: How are you dealing with the quarantine, by the way? How exactly is that resonating?
2: And I'm with here. You? With my, I'm here in New York. I have a. Uh, I'm in an apartment. I have a pretty good size apartment for New York. I also have a house in California, which I. Uh, did not go to I stayed here I have I live my daughter lives with us want my wife and my daughter my other daughter's in the village with her fiance I leave the house for an hour hour 15 minutes a day to take a walk she shops for us they cook we order in and I've been busy with the podcast otherwise uh, that's it watch tv read You've done so many
1: things, Steve. I mean, whether it's your cookbooks, you've been out and you've, uh, you know, you've got a podcast. Out. We, you know, we'll get to that in a little bit. Because uh, I do want to spend a little time on that. But I want—I want to go backwards a little bit, if I can. Let's let's go to the beginning a little bit. how did you how'd you get into business? How exactly did you wind up from the kid from Brooklyn, winding up in the actor? How'd you become an actor? How'd that all happen?
2: Just you well, know, I grew weeks. up in Bensonhurst, right, uh, and. Uh, I think you used to live on Bay 10, didn't you? I did, between yeah. Bath and Cropsey, Yeah. I grew up on Bay Eleventh at Benson, right on the corner. So uh, I graduated from Brooklyn College, played basketball there three years, 100 pounds ago. Uh, <laughs> I tried out for an Israeli t- to me to work on a kibbutz, because my mother's Jewish. My you know, my father my was uh, Catholic and, and Italian, and my mother's Jewish. So I didn't want to do that, so a buddy of mine had moved to Vegas, so I... Uh, He called me and said, come on, I'll get you a job. So I moved to Vegas and I delivered pizza for about eight months. And uh, then I became a bouncer at Paul Anker's nightclub. Uh, He had like the number one nightclub in town, you know. Uh, So I did that and I met a ton of people there, all kinds of celebrities and, and, uh, you know, a whole different world from what I was used to. You know, I grew up on welfare in in Brooklyn, you know. Uh, And then I worked some of those plays then I became a maitre d' at the Riviera hotel and they had a comedy club and I worked with a lot of acts then and I was booking acts and, and some of the guys uh put me in some of their sketches and little shows I did uh Kevin Pollock's a comic HBO special so I started doing some little bit parts in the early to mid 90s and uh I kind of got the bug. I, I was enjoying it, but I had a really good job. I had a wife and two kids, and then I came to New York for a wedding, and I auditioned for The Sopranos. and uh, And this, a year later, I moved here full time. The first year, I paid. I had to pay my own way, and I had to put myself up. So I was living in Vegas, and I was flying back and forth to New York. It cost me twenty four grand to make twenty two grand. For real. I, I took a shot on myself, you know, and uh, the hotel was nice enough. They gave me time off. And uh, the following year, they made me a series regular. So I moved my family back here to New York, and that was in uh, I guess in 2000. Yeah. I joined the show in 1999.
1: When you first picked up the script for The Sopranos, you had to read, right? You had to read, right? to read yeah, for David did. Chase, i would going to assume, right? Who was the creator of the show, the, the mastermind of the show. Uh, showrunner, if you will, uh, what was it that you think he saw you that he said, you know, I'm going to give this guy the part? Because a lot you of people audition
2: for that I, I don't sure. know. Uh, you know, I I read for the role of an FBI agent and uh, Christopher Walken's wife, George Ann, she's a casting director, as was Sheila Jaffe. And I read for George Ann Walken up on Broadway, uh, you know, like in Times Square. And it was just me and her. And I was a little nervous. And she said, stop. What are you nervous? Stop. It's just me and you here. So that calmed me down. And then uh, she said, I don't see you as an FBI agent. Read this. And she gave me the road of Bacala. She said, we already have someone in mind, but read this. And uh, I cold read it. And we talked. She said, you know, it's a local hire, blah, blah, blah. If I could get you to read for David, would you come back? And I'll be honest, I had no idea who David was. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. And so they called me a week later, and I wasn't going to go back. I told my wife, what am I going to go back? I got to pay for the airfare, put myself up. It's not worth it. And she said, go, go, go. You're only happy when you're doing this, go. So I came out. I worked very hard on the scene. I didn't read the script, I don't think, at that point. I just had the scene that I was auditioning for. Uh, which was a scene with Uncle Junior in the psych in not the psych in the doctor 's office you know the eye doctor 's office and uh I went in when I went to silver cup there was there had to be a hundred and fifty people in the hallway, not, not just for the role of Bacala but for all the roles and i seen like real actors you know like guys that I recognize and i 'm going, what shot do I have when these guys Uh, they're real guys, you know. I said, I got no chance. Big hallway. I went in there, and it was about 15 people, uh, a lot of people. And I just put my head down. I had worked very hard on it, and uh, I did my thing. He said, hey, that was really good, and I left, and they called the next morning. So what do I think he saw in me? I I, I think, uh, like I said, I worked extremely hard, uh, I don't look like everyone else. I don't sound like everyone else. I'm sure there was a lot of cookie cutter uh, cut gangsters coming in, you know. Uh, the role of Bobby, he never told me what it was. I just assumed he wasn't very bright. The the one thing I did when I got the script, I saw all these fat jokes. Tony calls him a gonoli with legs. Uh, you Thank know, you should start to consider eating salads, you know, all these fabrics, and I'm going, I'm not much fatter than him in real life. And sure enough, they called and said I had to get fitted for a fat suit. So for the season two and three, I wore a fat suit. Then season four, I got fat enough on my own. And that was it. I mean, I don't know. That, you know, obviously, as time went on, you know, they, uh, they gave me more and more stuff to do. He had confidence in me. I started out with just a, a bit player. I did six episodes that first season out of the 13 and but
1: how much of a help to you were people like James Gandolfini and Edie Falco who you know had had acting careers they had you know they had been in the business this was not their first go around the first rodeo for them the the experience that they brought to was to a show like the Sopranos Uncle Junior as well the character the gentleman played Uncle Junior uh, they brought a lot to this, didn't they? And they were able to oh. sort of, you know, I'm say take you under their wing, but certainly well, they didn't yeah, give you well, some guidance.
2: You know, they, they didn't give you acting lessons. They didn't give you tips. Right. But, you know, actors aren't always the nicest people. And, uh, you know, an, an older actor or an actor with experience could destroy a guy that's pretty green. I wasn't green, green. I had done numerous movies. I did Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I did a King of Queens. I did a Chicago. You know, I had I had that stuff, you know. So I wasn't – you know, I knew how to hit my mark. I wasn't a green banana. that never did this. But you kind of just watched and learned from them, you know. Uh, early on, I worked with Junior, Dominic Cianese. He couldn't be a better guy. There's not a better guy in the world, you know. And he was a mentor, but talking, just in between takes, relaxing, talking. He would say, use your belly. Use your belly. He would always give me t- – <laughs> use that stomach you know stuff like that Uh, you know with Jim uh, you never you know like if you you had if he was yelling at you you didn't have to act scared you were scared so there was stuff like that my first scene was with Tony Soprano uh, Paulie Walnuts Silvio and Big Pussy that was the first scene they threw me right in the fire right from the start you know, and I was kind of naive because if I think about it now, I probably would have been really nervous. And I wasn't. You know, I was prepared and I did my thing. And and, uh, and I remember this the first day, Jim said, let's, you know, we had a scene, me, him and Junior and Dominic. And he said, let's go run lines. And so we went into his trailer. And I remember it was like an out-of-body experience. I'm watching these guys on TV last week. And now I'm in this trailer going over lines with the two of them. And I had never met them before. I didn't know anyone. I left New York in 1980. I was gone. You know, this was 1999. I I, I barely came back here once I was gone, you know, so.
1: When did you know? When did you know, Steve, that this was a hit? That this this show became, went beyond pop culture. This show was a bona fide hit. The biggest series to date that HBO had ever had, probably cable television ever had. And it actually changed the sensibility of television. I mean, were you you reading lines? You said yeah. you one day. You know, I, did, I didn't watch
2: this. it. I didn't watch it that much, you know, John. I uh, I don't know why. Once I got cast, then I went back. I said, I better see what's going on here. I don't know why I didn't watch it. Uh, when I was shooting the show, they got nominated. I think they were the first cable show to ever get nominated for an Emmy. And they got na- nominated for 16. Uh, and I happened to be working that day when they announced it. So that was a big deal on the set in the office. Uh, 16, it's nothing compared to how many you have, you know. But uh, it, was, it was good for the time for them. And uh, so then you kind of knew, wow, you know. And then people really started watching you know, and then it just it just exploded. I mean, it was, uh, you know, you couldn't go anywhere, uh, you, you know, then all of a sudden people are recognizing the you know, people, people who I knew for years were asking me to sign autographs and pictures. I'm going, what are you talking about? You know? And so uh, that's when it really became. You know, uh, I think that was the turning point. This cable show, the reviews were incredible. They they're nominated for 16 Emmys and I think everyone then said they took notice. And and then it's become a worldwide, worldwide thing, man. You know, I mean there's it's all over the world. Thirteen years later, the show ended in two thousand seven. People are watching it. There's a new generation watching it. You know, only eleven million people had HBO at the time. Right. You know, now with streaming and Amazon and HBO Go, which is streaming it for free. And yeah, on demand, there's probably more people watching it now than they did then, you know.
1: You, you, say, you you're, I'm sorry, um I'm sorry, it's Kevin. Sorry, hey, for,
2: Kevin, sorry. I got to jump hey, in here. About you? Yeah, hey, I, I could tell. Hey, <laughs> go, I thought it was just uh, a one. I thought they were just hanging out. I don't know. I thought they were like your bodyguards. <laughs> <They need>
1: bodyguards.
0: <laughs> you don't want me as a bodyguard. So, Steve, fast forward to today, and, and you're actually, actually re-watching the show for your podcast talking sopranos what makes now like you said it's 13 years later what makes
2: now the great the perfect time for that podcast well i haven't watched it in 20 years nor has michael imperioli you know he played christopher he hasn't watched it either so uh i completely forgot everything and we've been working on this for about six months you know and Then what's going on in the world, we were supposed to get started. We were supposed to be here in New York doing it in a studio together. And uh, he's in California. I'm here. And we didn't know if we wanted to do it. You know, I I felt really crappy, uh, especially when this all happened. Neither one of us was saying, yeah, it's a great TV show, but what's going on in the world? Does it really matter about a TV show or anything matter except for what's going on? And then they had announced it in February. So all these people on social media were saying, please, please do this. We could use it now. I'm re-watching it. Please, please, please. So I said to Michael, and we said to each other, you want to try to do it? And uh, we've been doing it. And people seem to be very, very happy. We're on our third episode, came out yesterday. Uh, we've got a lot of views. We're on YouTube and Apple and Spotify and wherever you get podcasts. You could also watch it, like I said, on YouTube. And the response has been incredible. I mean, if you could take your mind off of what's going on in the world for an hour, uh, that makes me very happy. You know, it's happy. I'm happy to make people happy. You know, we give our insights. Uh, you know, we joke, we laugh. It's like two friends having lunch talking about work. You know, uh, Michael's been there from day one, so he's got the insight on everything, you know, uh, which is great. I ask a lot of questions and we got some guests coming on. We're going to have David Chase. He called me yesterday. He loved the podcast. Uh, he, uh, He wants to come on and we have directors and producers and cast and all the people that made the show what it was, the location people and casting. You know, I'm curious to see what people, how many people were, who was up for what role? I don't know any of that. So well, congrats
0: to you. I'm looking on iTunes now as we do this top 3 podcast and that's an all the podcasts. So the response obviously's been huge.
2: Yeah, it's going good. So far so good. If you're a fan and it's all over the world, you know. I mean so if you're a fan, I think uh I think you'll learn something, I think you'll enjoy, you know.
0: What's the uh the emotions? You have to be a ton of different emotions I would think going back in time watching it. Um, watching people that maybe are no longer with us, unfortunately. What's that been like for you?
2: Listen, Jim was one of my closest friends, you know. I mean, to watch him uh, is hard, you know. I mean, you know, you try to forget. But, uh, yeah, uh, to watch Jim there, you know, he's young, younger. I think he's in his late 30s at the time. He's got some hair. He's in decent shape at the beginning, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And so all of that stuff – is uh, it brings back memories and with Michael, you know, you know, it, it's been a long row. We've been friends for 20 something years. So, uh, you know, the thing with the Sopranos, it was kind of like a family. Uh, you were together a long time. We traveled a lot together. We did a lot of appearances and, and uh, uh, charity events. We went to each other's openings and book parties and we supported each other. And people went through divorces and marriages and had kids. So, and that's casting, it was very much like that. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a little tough. It's a little tough, but it's also great, you know, that it was a part of it and that we were a part of it and we could see it, you know, and then think back. And when you see something, it jars a memory. Oh, I remember that, you know. What did you think of the ending of The Sopranos? Listen, we watched the ending in Florida at the Hard Rock, nine of us. They, they uh, We did a, a finale thing. 10,000 people showed up. And then we went to a room, the nine of us. It was uh, me, Jim, Michael, I think Lorraine Bracco, a couple of the other guys, uh, Stevie Van Zandt. And we watched the show. And I knew what was going to happen. I read the script. But when it happened, I was very confused. Uh, some guys liked it. Some guys hated it. Uh, I didn't know what to think. And then the next day, I, th- I saw on the news, every channel had it on, all these conspiracy theories that there was all these endings and all this stuff, and that was all lies. And my opinion, Tony Soprano is alive and well and living in New Jersey. I don't think anything happened. Nothing at all. And the old guy with the members only, nothing happened. What you saw is what you saw. That's my opinion. Uh, Michael thinks he died. I, I don't know. Well, that's the beauty of the ending, I guess. If and you, I, listen, and 13 yeah. years later, you know, it ended in 2007. 13 years later, barely a day goes by when someone doesn't ask about
1: it. So it stayed. I mean, the staying power of the series was it was a great, it was great work on the part of all the actors and writers and everybody involved to bring that that series to, to, to the heights that it reached. And uh, you know, people talking still talking about the still talking about the series. So, and, and you've done a lot with that series subsequently, right? You you guys have still stayed together. You've gone on the road. You've done like road yeah, shows. Yeah, yeah, we do. Series. We do
2: a show called Conversation with the Sopranos. Uh, we we we've, we've toured the United States, uh, and it's uh, a show. It's myself, Michael, uh, Vinny Pastore, Tony Sirico used to come with us. He's not feeling that well. Uh, and we went to Australia on a seven-city tour last May, 2,000 people a show. Uh, we had a 16-city tour coming up next month, uh, the UK, Scotland, and Dublin, uh, but it all got canceled. But the show uh, has a lot of legs, and it's worldwide, honestly. it's It's amazing. I mean, we were on the end of the world in Australia, and 2,000 people showed up, you know. Uh, so it, that amazes me, and if people come up to you: Saudi Arabia, Italy, Spain, Israel. I mean, this thing is everywhere. Norway, you know. Uh, and we've done; those shows are enjoyable because we get to hang around, uh, hang with each other, uh, do the question and answer, do a meet and greet. That's been a lot of fun, you know, been able to travel, you know, and do that. So, hopefully, at some point, we can do it again. I don't know when that is.
1: And you were on another iconic show. Now you play a detective, right? And you're on Blue Bloods with Tom Selleck and an all-star cast.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was on another show after The Sopranos with Molly Ringwall. It was called Secret Life of the American Teenager. And it was a big hit. It kind of put ABC Family on the map. I remember this. I remember yeah. that. yeah. And I got that about six months after it ended, uh, which was good because it wasn't a mob thing. Uh, and I liked that. That was... I did 110 episodes of that. I was just, a, uh, it was like a high school show when I, and I had a kid in high school and it was a really well done show. And then, uh, I, you know, I've written six books, turned one of them into a movie, Nicky Deuce, uh, which is one of Jim Gander's best appearances. He came up to Montreal, Michael Imperioli's in and Johnny Sack, uh, Tony Sirico. Uh, Rita Moreno plays my mother. It's a kid movie for Nickelodeon. Uh, and then I've done produced shows for Discovery and I was a correspondent for Leno and I did a whole bunch of stuff. And then Blue Bloods comes along. I was supposed to do one or two and I've done 76 six episodes. Uh, I only did 53 Sopranos. I've done 76 and and uh, they they've given me terrific stuff. I work with Bridget mostly Moynihan, who's great. I love working with her. I work with Wahlberg a little bit. He's a good guy. Uh, Selick I've had one scene with. I see him <laughs> once or twice a year. We're on different... And everyone thinks when you're on a show together, you all see each other, but that's not how it works. So uh, Tom's a really good guy, and he steers the ship, and it's a great cast, great writers. I mean, really, I, I couldn't be happier. Here, be, it would here... It being here in New York, you know, I couldn't be happy. Favorite from all the work that you've done, Sopranos, Blue
1: Bloods, you've written books as you said, you've had such an interesting, varied career across the board. You have to take one moment, so one moment and say, this defines this is, for as great as all this has been, I'm very lucky, fortunate, but I've also made my own luck, because you're very talented. What's the one moment that you'd say, put in a time capsule to be remembered by, what's the one moment?
2: Tough one. Uh, you know, uh, You know, I, I don't know if there is one, you know, John. I mean, th- things kept, uh, you know, I came from the other side of the business. So I, I kind of, i tell you what, making that movie, Nicky Deuce, getting that made, it took me seven years. I sold it to Nickelodeon and it took me seven years to write this kid's book about a kid growing up in Brooklyn and it was though it wasn't uh me growing up it was in my head the neighborhood growing up and my grandmother and stuff like that and uh I think that was it getting that made and then having some of my friends come up I was able to uh they were nice enough to be in the movie and we shot it in Montreal and I was there for two months and uh that I enjoyed tremendously. And that was a big, crowning achievement for me to get. It's impossible to get a movie made. And that I enjoyed, you know. I had a lot of input in the casting and, and what happens and, you know, and, and the whole thing. And that was the first time I ever got that. So I enjoyed that tremendously, getting that made, you know. And the book, the first book, Goomba's Guide to Life, came out of nowhere. It was a New York Times <laughs> seller. You know, I mean, this was, uh, I was approached to do a cookbook. We did this, uh, you know, a comedic book. It was supposed to be a cookbook, and then it became, you know, this comedy book about Italians, and uh, uh, that came out of nowhere, man. I mean, we were going to book signings. 500 people showed up in the middle of winter. You know, we did the Today Show. We did the Tonight Show. So all of that, that was a big thing, too. That came... I mean, that was early on. I was like, how did this happen, you know? I was kind of a, still a small player on the show, but the stars were lined up, became number 13 on New York Times bestseller list, and uh, that was another thing that was, like, pretty amazing. You know, I was like, God, that you know.
0: And on top of all that, you're a Yankees fan, I understand.
2: Oh, yeah. The only person bigger, my wife, is a okay. huge Yankees fan. My wife, Flora nobody's a fan of that but i am a yankee fan that's how i got to meet john and we did send i did send a stage which that was a good one that was one of those things you don't get to do that became a huge show uh that was an honor to do that uh and uh hopefully we'll get back to the stadium you know you know uh, we're fans that's the hope
0: yeah Uh, we, we do know there will be baseball we don't know when that's the thing um but when they do, the Yankees will take the field. What do you think, Steve? What do you think of this team?
2: Listen, uh, unfortunately, anything but a World Series win is going to be a disappointment to a lot of fans, you know? That's all I could say. But uh, I love going. Listen, I'm not a front runner, good or bad, I'm there. Listen, I'm still a Nick fan. I'm the last <laughs> Nick fan left. <laughs> You're the one. So you know, these people are. It's amazing to me. I've been a Knicks fan since I'm a kid, eight years old. It's amazing to me how you could go there and boo them. I mean, you're not always happy, but hey, man, I'm a fan. I don't go bounce back and forth, you know? I mean, this is it. I'm with you. I'm a diehard. That's it. I'll tell you another funny story. Tony Sirico goes, you know, probably one that's a character and a half, right? Only two people in the world that have his hair do with the wings, or him and Grandpa much? <laughs> you know, never took off that hair. Well, Al Lewis? Al Lewis. So, so he's at a charity event, and he used to wear this royal blue powdered suit, like a powdered blue suit. Guy comes, he's taking pictures, you know, he's very nice, very charitable guy, goes to all these, so guy comes up to him with a picture, and he says, Tony, would you sign this? And Tony goes, how the hell did you get that? meat so fast Jesus he said that's from last year <laughs> <laughs> he's wearing the same suit the <laughs> uh, well,
1: you know uh, uh, you have a lot of stories Steve you know and you tell them well and uh, you've had a tremendous career and, uh, and continued success in everything you do and uh, thanks for rooting for the Yankees we appreciate that thanks oh. for, uh, yes in business we appreciate that and thanks
2: for being here and thank you. And uh, Talking Sopranos, YouTube, anywhere where you get your podcasts. And we tell a lot of stories like this. Uh, Tony Sirico claims he, he was a bouncer in uh, the village, in the city, and a real tough guy—not a—not a make-believe tough guy. He said he used to give Jimi Hendrix wedgies in the old days. <laughs> Jimi <laughs> Hendrix—he used to give him wedgies. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, that, no, I can't talk. We can't talk. All right, guys. Thank you. Thank what you so much, about, Steve.
1: Man. Thanks for your
0: time. Steve, Steve thank you. You and your family. No road. Talking Thanks, to you. Thanks, Steve. Stay, stay, stay
2: safe. safe. Well,
0: Flip, you were right. That was a great conversation. Well, he's so much fun. He's, he's such a good guy.
1: He's got so many great stories. And, uh, it was a pleasure having him. And we had talked about him when we started the, the podcast, Kevin, that we would, you know, we talk about figures in the world of sports and the world of, you know, sports media, but we would try to branch out where we could and get, uh, some interesting people from the world of just general entertainment, and to be able to get Stephen as a guest was uh, uh, was terrific. And uh, you know now he's got a podcast. We so said we're in competition with The Sopranos now.
0: Yeah. Well, while you were talking and um, you guys were doing your own thing and not letting me in, I was able to uh, <laughs> search iTunes a little bit. <laughs> he's legitimately in the top five podcasts. He, he legitimately is, and I,
1: I I I would tend to think he could have they could have their sights on number one because that show has gotten nothing but bigger through the years and he did such an incredible job. and It was such a great show to watch and to be in a series that, like I said, is that iconic and has resonated the way that series has resonated through the years and at the time and through the years. And again, because it was so so groundbreaking, uh, he's got he a lot of interesting things to say, and he's fun. And we did get t- – he and I really did get going on the conversation. So I actually forgot you were there, which is really hard for me to do because you're sort of an omnipresence in my life, so it's hard for me to forget all about you. But I actually did. And I was actually enjoying myself. was it nice?
0: And <laughs> until you interrupted us. You know, it was like talking to a friend. You know, sometimes you get around some of these guys, and um, they don't make you comfortable, or they don't seem like they really want to talk to you. It was like talking with a friend.
1: Yeah, I mean, my part was, I don't know about your part, but I mean, he certainly likes me. I mean, yeah, when I weaseled my it. way in,
0: it worked out. <laughs> he, was very, he was very nice about it. Though. He's like, yeah, what's this guy doing here? <laughs> yeah, it, it was fun, Flip. I can't wait to uh, talk to him again, actually. I feel like we made a, uh, a friendship there a little bit. Um, but until next time, I think it's important, Flip, right? We've got to talk about social distancing. Let's all do our part. Let's all stay safe um i want to be able to do this podcast again you know with me you and dan in the same studio together as opposed to um uh, doing this over zoom yeah kevin absolutely i really do look forward to the day
1: we're actually we're all working together again it's uh it's a lot of fun but it's just not the same not being in the same room with you guys and, and uh i miss you and, uh i just miss you guys and uh, i'm hoping for better days we all are and uh we're gonna see them there'll be a line of sight soon i know that we'll be and we'll get through it we'll get through it as a and we'll get through it as a world we, we will get through this thing so I look forward to the day I can see you all again and, and be in the same place with you
0: well flip the feelings mutual um, I miss you I miss Dan I miss the guys um, how about we land this thing though
1: the words of Ashley Fugazi it's time to land the plane with or without Jason Marshall
0: <laughs> for Mr. John J. Filippelli I am Kevin Sullivan saying we'll see you next time
1: and Dan Bissone see you next time